Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and you are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. It's the best podcast in creation, but you don't have to take my Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... I say this, and nobody seems to think it's a big deal except me, but uh, my father never saw me act, not on television, not uh, in the theater, and not in film. Uh, he, he never did. And the television was, you know, 10 feet away from him. I knew this was his way of saying, okay, I'm glad you won. It's a good thing, but I can't let you surpass me in terms of power. It's Hollywood all the way, and I just don't buy it. And, and that was that. And until the end, you know, we were like that. And I, until the end, I laughed. Until the bitter end, I laughed at that. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome back to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and theroarbots.com. Uh, you can find us on all the socials at the GBB Podcast and the Roarbots. I am your host, Jamie Green, and joining me this week is Sherry. Hello. Hello. Um, you know what? No chit chat. No chit chat. We're, we're going to, this, we're diving right into this yeah. because this week, uh, Pardon my French. It was awesome. It was awesome, and we did get the guest. We did get the guest to say the end, which was cool <laughs> and great. Now I think we need to give this an explicit tag. <laughs> we had to anyway. She said it. <laughs> I usually let one slide. <laughs> um, yeah. So this week we had the thrill and the privilege of talking to Kate Mulgrew. Uh, she had the re- okay. So let's back up. The reason. Um, we spoke to her is number one because she's awesome and why why not and she really she really was awesome she yes yes and we'll get to that but uh the primary reason is she's just now beginning to do some press and make the rounds for a new book she has out which is her second memoir and i'm gonna um kind of sit back here and let you give the good people um the quick and dirty rundown of of what it is she talks about in this book versus the first book in case anybody has read that um, and what one might find within its pages. So yes, as Jamie said, this is her second memoir, How to Forget. And it was amazing. It was, it's about um, caring for her parents as they were both at the end of their lives. Her father um, had a very sudden brain cancer diagnosis and died within a couple of weeks and her mother unfortunately died much more slowly unfortunately in in some ways died much more slowly um from complications from alzheimer's and uh her experience both taking care of them you know trying to balance her her own life with spending as much time with her parents as possible and also trying to 
negotiate those decisions with the rest of her siblings. She is um, from a family of... Did she say seven? There were eight of them. I believe there are now six. Uh, Two of her sisters, unfortunately, are deceased. One died very young from a congenital heart defect, which now we can fix, but they could not at the time. Um, And another of her sisters died of a brain tumor when she was 12 or 13. Um, And it is very difficult to negotiate those things, especially um, some siblings are around more than others. Some are local, some are not. Some have more medical knowledge than others. Um, So that becomes a very complex thing as well. There's And obviously there's a lot of emotion involved. So this is for, for those people who might primarily know her from Star Trek Voyager. This is not like a memoir of her time on the show. Like, this no, is not the and kind she of did book write go- that her first memoir, Born With Teeth, is, is her memoir of her career. Mm-hmm. And it is also very good. I read that one too. Um, but it is very different. Yeah. This is a much more personal, much more um, introspective look for her as, as a person, as a daughter, and and her family. This is not where you're going to go for those funny behind-the-scenes anecdotes of her time on, on Voyager or Orange is the New Black or any of her other, the other shows or plays that she's been in. And she kind of, she told us, um, she kind of left her life behind to write this. She went and lived in Ireland in a remote location for three years to write this book. Yeah. And I, I can imagine it being the type of story that you need to be somewhat secluded and have the time in order to sort of fish it out of yourself mm-hmm. and be able to distinguish fact from fiction. You know, what, what are memories that are true memories of things that actually happened and just memories of things that you kind of remember. And I think mm-hmm. that it happened this way, but it was so long ago and the emotions were running so fast because of so many things that maybe it didn't really happen that way. So I can, right. I can see why, this particular story took such a long time to get out. And her, and also, you know, additionally, her family was, and continues to be very complicated. Mm -hmm. The thing that I noticed is that many times when celebrities write memoirs, they're often ghostwritten by Uh somebody else. You know, the, the, the celebrity has their name on it because it's their book, it's their life. But they really just kind of provided some notes and some, some, this is what happened um, you know, this is the order that it happened in. And then the ghostwriter really does write it. But she wrote these books. Yes. And what astonished me and probably shouldn't have, but kind of did, was just how well written they are. Yeah. And it amazes me that she has not written anything else. You know, she hasn't written fiction. She hasn't written more than just these two books. And she is such a good writer. I bet she would be a great fiction writer. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And they're also very honest. Um, You know, even when celebrity memoirs are truthful, they're not, they're, they're still often, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. Even when they're truthful, it's a prettier version. Mm -hmm. This is, this is not pretty. Right. Because they're, especially when, when you talk about an actor, because actors are used to acting, you know, they, they'll, they'll give you a version of the truth that they want you to see. Right. And not only is she raw and honest, and not only is she honest about her, her family 
And you'll hear this in the interview as well. She is very honest about herself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we asked her some tough questions and she gave us very honest answers. And it seems, though, that this has been her whole career. Like this Mm -hmm. is this is who she is. You know, she you know, she doesn't pull punches. She doesn't Mm -hmm. put up a false face. She doesn't try to pretend to be someone that she's not. You know, her whole career has been this way from starting out on stage and the roles that she took through Ryan's Hope, through Star Trek Voyager, through Orange is the New Black, the roles that she has decided to take and her putting so much of herself into them. You know, she's not, and we talked about this a little bit with the the struggles that she had in the early days on Voyager is that they wanted, you know, they were focused, the the, the showrunners and the directors and the producers were worried about her hair and her sex appeal Mm -hmm. and what relationships she was going to have. And was she appealing to the audience in a way that, um, you know, they later in the show had to bring on that board character in order to compensate because they were- Picard never had to walk in five inch heels. Exactly. Exactly. And that was the struggles that she was having. And, you know, she stood her ground and she Mm -hmm. fought and she said, listen, you hired me. This is who you get. This is who I am. I'm not going to walk around in the heels and have different hair every episode and worry about my clothes because you're worried about demographics. You know, this is, this is the character that I'm portraying and this is me who I am as Kate Mulgrew. Deal with it. And they said, okay. Yeah. Eventually. I think eventually. It, it, it wasn't as simple she as that. It was, a couple se- it was a couple seasons. But yeah. eventually they said, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is, we're going to stop talking because, my God, like we said, this is, it was a, just a great conversation. Um, it was just such a thrill to have her on. And, you know, as much as the book is honest and doesn't cut corners or, or, pull any punches she is as well in person in interviews uh she's very honest she answers the questions she doesn't give stock standard answers that Mm -mm. don't really answer the question um i think we were also fortunate enough that we got her at the beginning of this promotional tour you know she hasn't really gone out on a book tour yet she hasn't really done a ton of interviews about this book so she hasn't told these stories and hasn't had to revisit the pain that she put in the book or the unpleasantness so many times that it's becoming uncomfortable. Right. So we were, I think very fortunate that we were at the, the early end of that. So I think that we got a much more introspective conversation and an interview than somebody might get a few months from now, I think. Well, thank you guys for coming back week after week. We love having you. We love, um, if you don't, if you're not a subscriber, please, what are you doing? Hit subscribe on whatever app, whatever program, whatever website you use to download and follow your favorite podcasts. Uh, we have been around, we are, you know, mid two hundreds now, which is kind of mind boggling and we're going to be around for a while. So we've got some great conversations coming up week after week. Please do hit subscribe if you don't. If you you know if you hear anybody saying, "Hey, what's a what's a good podcast or what's a good show to listen to about creativity or or how people you know in the industry or whatever that you how creators have found their way," please do recommend us. Word of mouth goes a long way, as do reviews. So you know, go onto that iTunes or your Google Play or your Stitcher and leave us a review. We will appreciate it. So until next week, I am Jamie Green. You can find me and the podcast at theroarbots and theroarbots.com. 
And I'm Shiri, and you can find me on Twitter at SWSunheimer and on Instagram at irate underscore Corvus. Here's our conversation with Kate Mulgrew. Take care. We're just going to get right into talking about your new book, How to Forget. Um, this is your second memoir that you've written. And I would imagine that when mining your own life or the lives of your families to write a memoir, it could be a very difficult exercise in introspection, reflection, what have you, but it could also be very cathartic. Um, what was your experience with writing this book and maybe as compared to writing the previous book? I suspected you would ask that question. I'm, I'm sorry if I set you up well, for that. I'm glad you did because of course it's the most appropriate and, uh, and revealing question of all. Um, Regarding catharsis, let me be very clear about that. Um, I don't really experience catharsis when I'm uh, doing an archaeological dig of this nature. The catharsis will, lies in the, in the satisfaction of the writing itself, but certainly not in um, the content of the writing hmm. in this case, because I was, um, I was reassessing the lives of my parents, how they shaped one another, their marriage, and how that, of course, inevitably shaped me. It's reverberating now. There are repercussions to this kind of work. The subconscious is a funny thing, and it knows that it's funny, and it knows that it's diabolical, because it gets to work uh, quickly enough so that one can produce, but then it just sort of uh, allows the shadows to fall thereafter. So I would say that in the wake in, uh, of, of, of having completed the book, I've experienced a great, um, uh, a, a lot of feeling that I, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't anticipating. Not to say that I didn't at the time. I was alone in a big, old, and gorgeous Irish house in a very remote part of Western Ireland in Connemara in the middle of winter. It took three years to write this book because my oldest son got sick. And, uh, you know, lashing rain, bitter, cold, roaring fires, a lot of, a lot of tears. Um, yeah, it was hard, and I knew that it would be hard. And that's the whole point, yeah. is to share what I think we, most of us feel, those of us who are in touch with ourselves and who are in love or with our parents, uh, so often these goodbyes are harsh and um, severed so abruptly that one is left a bit adrift. <clears throat> and our society doesn't lend itself to a great examination of that kind of grief. So I just decided to write about what it was like to actually let them go. Yeah. And that's what it is. Yeah. It, it sounds from what you were saying, you know, that it took such a long time to write and that it was, you know, difficult, a difficult process for you to relive these events, that it sounded like this was a story, though, that you needed to tell as opposed to one that you just wanted to tell. Well, I wouldn't write about my family if I didn't need to. Yeah. It's a very private business, um, which I've now made public. And in so doing, I think I have uh, uh, admitted or confessed to the world that the need was a was an imperative um and it has been 
assuaged. It was absolutely necessary. There have been repercussions. There have been, you know, a couple of problems with a few of my siblings. I'm one of many children. And uh, uh, privacy is a, uh, is a state devoutly to be guarded in one's lifetime. And I opened that gate, didn't I? And all the little feelings stampeded out of it. <clears throat> so there we are. So most people would say by adulthood that they've either become their parents or worked hard to be the opposite of their parents. Do you feel that you've chosen one or the other? Well, I think there's a certain inevitability here. We're talking about DNA, <laughs> sake, right? Right. And my parents are in my blood. I am them. Just short of a clone, one would suggest. Um, I'm I'm heavily uh, uh, favoring b b both of them. I would say um, I've never deliberately chosen. Uh, there are certain mannerisms that I understand that I have that are quite like my mother's, and yet I would say that my constitution and my uh, a lot of my character is a great deal like my father's. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't deliberately choose to be them at all. I would like to, to leave some form of an original stamp, although I know that's impossible. I would like to believe that, that, that I could. So I work on making Kate um, an, an original member of the species. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, having said that, Shiri, I'm, I'm quite pleased that I am a product of the two of them, having looked at each other and said to themselves, I think I'd like to kiss you. There, there are several points in um, in both of the books where you mention um, that your parents sort of established a relationship where you and your siblings, and as you said, you came from a very large family, um, sort of had to compete for their attention and their affection. Um, how how do you think that affected your both your personal and your professional lives? Enormously, I was the second oldest child and the and the firstborn daughter, in, in a in a family of my size, in an Irish Catholic family of my size, and I was one of eight siblings. That is the perfect position to have, and it is an enviable position. Uh, made more so by the fact that my mother not only needed and wanted me, but she. Uh, I think had been waiting for me in a sense. Um, I quickly became her confidant. Uh, uh, I quickly became her great helper. And then, of course, in the book, I reveal that I, in short order, uh, took care of my mother. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, we agreed to that at the kitchen table when I was 14, that I would be her mother. Um, me trying to laugh and not being able to actually um, produce a laugh because it was even then quite stunning that my mother would ask me to be her, her mother. Um, what she did quip, quippingly, that was her way. But the look, the, the look at me was um, the gaze of one who really longed for me to become her mother. So as soon as I could be shot into the world, which was at the age of 17, I did go. Uh, and I, I fulfilled the mission which she was very instrumental in, and that was to become an actress. I, I had to find a trade that was uh, immediately um, immediately promising, immediately um, fruitful, and acting was it. 
And of course, as soon as I could afford to, I sent for my mother. And that began a lifetime of sharing uh, my theatrical uh, adventures with her, my professional adventures with her. So uh, to answer your question, it, it is a good thing, and it is always uh, rife with conflict because I had six other siblings who, um, my sister Maggie died, so I'm, I'm not counting her in this, uh, when she was a baby. But my six other siblings, of course, longed for particularly my mother's attention. And I think I got the, uh, the preponderance of that uh, affection, at least uh, uh, outwardly. And whereas they never, ever said anything to suggest that it was untoward or hurtful, uh, I know that it, it was, uh, I know that it was difficult. I know that. How do you think it affected your own parenting? Jamie and I are both parents. We have, we have two each, so we have significantly smaller families ourselves. Right. Um, how do you think it affected your, your own parenting? I don't think it, it affected my parenting very well, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, uh, I've always been a, a conflicted person regarding a maternity within the parameters of a professional career, something I hope that will be studied in our culture. Um, going off to work was always um, a, a joyful for me, but at the same time, a, a terrible conflict. And of course, one's children feel that, and mine did. So what they're left with in the end, in their very absorbent little um, sensibilities, is the conflict itself. I think that um, the greatness of my position in my uh, original family uh, did not translate well into my the family that I had. I think that as a mother I was uh, over... Uh, solicitous. I think I was a, a, a coddling mother. I was a, a, absolutely the world's worst disciplinarian. And uh, I was an interesting mother. It was a dramatic household. Um, it was full of interesting people and all that. <laughs> and I adored them. And they know, they knew that I adored them. But it was, um, I didn't do the things that I reckon you do, Sheree, if you're um, who I think you probably are. I didn't uh, you know, tend to them as one ought to. I had full-time live-in help and all the rest of it because I was, you know, in those days, shooting 18 hours a day. It's, it, you know, there's always a way to not win as a mother, though, because I do my money job part-time, but I'm also a writer, and I've been I've been traveling more to do my writing stuff, and my mom thinks it's awful that I leave my kids with, you know, their father. <laughs> For a week at a time, um, and don't take them with me when I go to Comic Con and stuff like that. But just this morning, I was reading, um, I was finishing up Born with Teeth, and I read the scene where you took your sons to the Voyager premiere. Uh-huh. And I was like, that's why I don't bring my kids to Comic-Con with me. <laughs> yeah. So it, as, a, as a working mom, whatever your job is, there's no way to win. Somebody always thinks you're doing it wrong. So Yeah, and isn't that strange and too bad? Yeah. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, we're still sort of um, tethered to that old and primordial way of thinking. Um, but it's also important that we feel this way because we are the, the givers of life. 
And the preponderance of that responsibility lies with us, not the men. Men don't have to have the babies. We have the babies. So I get that. I mean, I'm with nature on that <laughs> part of it. Uh, I don't think there's a, 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 I don't think that there's a solution. I don't think that there ever will be. I say good luck to women. Women should have it all. Uh, and God bless their little children who will be forever <laughs> longing for their attention. <laughs> Actually, my daughter was very annoyed at me last night because I ended up having to stay at work late because of call-offs. I'm a, I'm a nurse part-time. And uh, I said, but honey, I made extra money and now I can buy you those books that you wanted. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so well, that was sort of, up. that sort of works, you know. But <laughs> and I tried the, the 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 absolute honest way, which was to say, I want to go to work. I love, mm -hmm. it. and this is my right. Well, they just looked at me like I was a dazed, crazed when I said, <laughs> you know, "No, your right is to be here with me, giving me my cereal." Right. <laughs> um, so that's what that is. Um, that's what that is, Shuri. It's um. It's a little sad about that, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Had that been a more comfortable part of the journey, I think I could uh, could say in all fairness to both of you that it would have been um, sublime. But it wasn't in large part because of that ongoing conflict. Memory, though, is, is a complicated mechanism. Um, and the way that you describe a lot of the moments in both Born With Teeth and How to Forget they feel very much like set pieces or scenes from a play. Is that how you remember them? Or is that the way that they happened? Or is there any way to really sort that out? Yes. <laughs> there is a way to sort that out. But I'm afraid that that's a bit, uh, probably a, a very a, a long and difficult journey. Uh, I'm willing to take it. I'd like to take it. Uh, I just can't take it this very minute. But to answer your question, which is a wonderful question, um, I think that those memories are first shaped by design, meaning either my parents wanted me to remember it that way, or the part of me that needed to survive well wanted me to remember it that way. But in fact, that's probably not what happened. Uh, uh, the set pieces, as you call them, did happen. But the feelings that emanated as a part of those little vignettes, I think, are probably much more complicated and multidimensional than uh, I've been able to articulate in the book, although I really gave it my, my very best shot in How to Forget. I don't think I managed it in Born with Teeth, but I, I did try in How to Forget to indicate uh, the complicated nature of, of the memory um, this is something that I will now be wrangling with, um, in this, uh, last great chapter of my life. You mentioned before, you know, that, um, putting these stories out there, they, they were stories that you needed to tell, but it was, you know, you've already dealt with some of the, the repercussions with your family. So I assume that your family has read this newest book. Um, have any of them sort of, I guess, disputed those memories? Or, or do they have different recollections of how things happened that, than how you put it in the book? Are you kidding, Jamie? Do you have siblings? <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> I have an older sister. Oh, you only have one. And Sheree, yeah. do you have siblings? I have two sisters. Right, so you have a little better idea. But when you have many, 
Of course. Yeah. Their upbringings were entirely different than mine. Their memories are completely different, and therefore their conclusions are completely different. Only one of my uh, siblings has um, raised tackles over this. Um, I'm not even sure that, uh, that all of them have read it. And in fact, I would probably advise them not to read it, since okay. memories are purely subjective. Uh, I, I in no way have anything to impart to them that they haven't already felt or experienced within their own minds and hearts. So um, again, that's back to the to, to the to the private. Um, I love my siblings, and uh, it was important to me in writing this that none of them be hurt. Mm. And the fact that I may have scratched. Uh, one or two of them bothers me a lot. But uh, as my mentor and Royfi said to me, that is the price of writing well and with honesty. You can't write it uh, uh, as if you were penning a Hallmark television movie. It's, um, it's the truth or it's not the truth. And it's my truth. So yeah, uh, one of my brothers in particular had a difficult time. I hope he forgives me. <clears throat> my sisters and I, my youngest sister and I got along pretty well because she's, she's significantly younger than me. My middle sister and I did not get along for a very long time, but recently sat down, all three of us, and had a very frank discussion about our childhood. And it turns out part of the reason we didn't get along is because we apparently grew up in entirely different households. Well, so. good. <laughs> Are you the oldest, huh? I am, yeah. That's the primo seat. Um, <laughs> because they wanted and, and needed you. But <laughs> the other two were just sort of happy, uh, uh, I guess, additions. But uh, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> Why would we think that we would all agree on certain things? Uh, on, on, on things as, as precious as what formed us and who loved us? I mean, I think it's unbearable to think that a mother loved one child or favored one child more than another. It's just not not good mm-hmm. but uh, uh unfortunately it is uh, uh nine times out of ten uh, the case do you do you think that you i guess if we want to call them your formative experiences but your experiences growing up your upbringing did 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 the, the family that you grew up in did that lead to you becoming an actor or was acting sort of like a way to to process the experiences that you were having I mean, whether it be escapist or therapeutic or, or whatever was you know was that was was acting and assuming another personality assuming another role or another life was that a way to deal with the reality that you were having or was it escapism or there's a lot of questions couched in there I'm sure there's an ele- our elements of that, but I write in Born with Teeth of the uh, crucial moment, the critical moment with my mother. I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Of course, all 12-year-old girls fancy themselves Emily Dickinson, but I really did, I did want to write. And my mother came and, and listened to me read my poetry to all the nuns who were in tears because they're, you know, <laughs> very sentimental nuns. <laughs> um, uh, and on the way home, she just said to me, look it. I'm going to be straight with you. You can either be a mediocre poet or a great actress. Mm. So you take your pick here. And she then got behind me. She she really just uh, every inch and step of the way supported me in a vigorous and very uh, visceral and uh, aggressive, almost aggressive way. So that I was training by the age of 14, 15. I was off to London at 16. I was you know trying to get to New York at 17. Um, and she provided all of that support 
the reason acting was chosen is because, as I said to you earlier, she was uh, convinced that I had this gift in reading my poetry to a bunch of, you know, strange-looking children uh, in rural Iowa and a bunch of nuns weeping. I mean, it was really quite a scene. Um, and th therefore, the, I was suddenly elevated to, to that level. I was going to be an actress. And uh, having it was done. It was an epic thing, and it was just done. Uh, I knew that I could achieve this quickly. I had a high confidence because of my mother's belief in me, uh, also fueled by my father's um, my father's resistance. My father did not want me to be an actress. Uh, swore up and down that it was a, going to be a great mistake that I was going to break my neck right out of the gate, and that was, as it turns out, very important to the whole process. Had I not him, had I not had him resisting as much as my mother was pushing, I doubt that I would have become the actress that I have become, which is arguably a, a successful one. So um, uh, that was it. It was written. But I think underneath, and this is this goes back to your question of what what is it? What shaped you? I think the putting away of the writing was a costly thing, mm -hmm. and I had to really bury that. And as, as soon as I uh, made the decision to become an actress, my brother Tom was elevated to the role of writer in the family. And then it was all about how Tom was going to go to Oxford and he was going to write. He was going to be the writer in the family. Kitty was going to be the actress in the family. And Joe was going to be the polymath in the family. And everybody was given a role. Um, a lot of families don't do this, but mine, mine absolutely did. Um, and that in itself had a lot of, you can imagine, um, uh, curious uh, uh, conflicts, curious tensions uh, around it, because then my brother felt compelled to be a writer. I, he wasn't sure he wanted to be a writer, and I knew that I had had to let go of being a writer to become an actress, and my writing was never again discussed. It was just then uh, a life of acting. Mm. Was your father's resistance to you becoming an actor, and you, know, you said that was what propelled you into being a great actor, was it because you had something to prove to him particularly, or was it just the challenge of proving somebody wrong? Well, it wouldn't be the challenge of proving just anybody wrong. Of course I wanted to prove to my father mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that he was wrong. And I also wanted to best him. Um, as only an oldest daughter can, uh, who shares her, who, who is well, well in her mother's favor, uh, who often steals her mother's time from said father. So um, my relationship with my father was uh, very clear. It was a, uh, it was a, a battle, but it was a loving battle, but it was a tough one. You know, you guys, uh, I say this, and nobody seems to think it's a big deal except me, but uh, my father never saw me act, not on television, not uh, in the theater, and not in film. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he never did. And the television was, you know, 10 feet away from him. That, who, he, who wouldn't think that's a big deal? That's a huge deal, I feel. Well, everybody always says, well, you know, that's dad's. Uh, uh, my dad I, doesn't read my writing. Right. Did you not know that, Jamie? No. But I think um, your writing was on television every yeah. night. 
Three. If, if you were on like a hit show in a worldwide franchise, I feel like your dad might watch that. Maybe. I mean, if you're, it was right in front of your, his face. Yeah. Perhaps. Your Perhaps. friends would say something's wrong with your dad. Uh, <laughs> and my father was just uh, apparently not interested, but I knew that it was intentional. I knew that uh, this was his way of saying, "Okay, I'm glad you won. It's a good thing, but I can't let you." Uh, I can't let you surpass me in terms of power. Mm. Uh, it's Hollywood all the way, and I just don't buy it. Yeah. And and that was that. And until the end, you know, we were like that. And I, until the end, I laughed. Until the bitter end, I laughed at that. And I never once, until the night before he, I mean, he died a week later, but we had a night, I don't know if you've read uh, How to Forget, where we, Mm-hmm. he's facing his, his, he's been given a death sentence. And I knew it was my last night with my father in this world. And, uh, I wanted, I made it last. We drank almost an entire bottle of vodka. And, um, I asked him that night and he told me, he said, uh, he didn't tell me the truth, which was, you know, you, you burned, you, you bugged me, you irritated me and you took, my, and you took my wife's attention from me. And uh, you were gone all the time. Uh, and your mother was gone then as a result of your being gone. And it was a, a difficult thing. He just said, I didn't buy the Hollywood bullshit. And uh, <laughs> none of it interested me. I said, none of it? He said, not any of it. Nope. I said, well, let's have another drink and talk about death. Yeah. So that's the kind of relationship that we have. <laughs> I, I wonder... You know, we we talked earlier about how difficult it was to write these stories down and to write these and to bring up these memories and to live with them for three years. But do you think and I know you're at the beginning now of a book tour and promoting this book. Is this process going to be equally as hard or even maybe more hard because you have to speak about it in real time and you have to give voice to all of these things that had just been living in your head and as words on a page? Yeah, it's excellent. You guys ask very, very good questions. Uh, I think this one's going to be much harder than Born with Teeth. I was um, hungry at the gate with Born with Teeth. Uh, uh, That hunger has given way to a different kind of feeling, which is that I would like, as I said to you at the beginning of this podcast, um, I find writing a deeply, almost and and surprisingly satisfying experience um, it's a, it's a, for me, it's an exercise. It's a practice um, that I just, I just love, and I wanted to continue. So I, I wrote more, um, how to forget with it, uh, you know, from a, an entirely different place. Uh, and now that I'm facing the more public aspects of it, the, the publicity aspects of it, to be quite frank, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little, little skittish. Because I know that it will not allow for any uh, kind of uh, pretense. And um, I'm going to have to be uh, as frank with everyone else as I'm hoping I am with you. And uh, it's not as easy a book to talk about. Uh, Born with Teeth is a linear freshman effort. I did my best. But uh, How How to Forget It was a much harder book to write. And, And for me, a much deeper experience. So to pull that up is going to be um, an interesting thing with any kind of facility. Yeah. 
you you've certainly recaptured your love of writing um you know that you, you say that you were forced to abandon earlier uh it, it seems almost wrong to say this given the tone and the content of how to forget but your writing really sparkles like it's just a joy to read and and despite these somewhat um sad stories that you might tell or or you know the the tone uh it, it's just the stories leap off the page and you write with a vibrancy that makes you want the reader want to just keep turning the page. It's like the best of the binge-worthy shows, but in book form. Well, and um, it's very clear that, you know, despite arguments and, and fights and personality conflicts, how much your family loves each other. Oh, that's so important, Sherry. Thank you. Thank you. I needed, I mean, it was really, that is true. That is absolutely true. Uh, and I wanted more than anything for that to, to to be shared and to be in evidence. So if you say that it was, then I'm happy. But even so, you see, uh, one or two siblings are going to be a little bit miffed about certain passages because they don't agree with them. <laughs> um, you, you, you talk uh, a little bit about the the feeling of the, those feelings in the moments before you go on stage. You, know, you, you the beginning of the book you were talking about uh, when you were playing Catherine Hepburn. Oh, and, yeah. And you know the the doesn't matter how many times you've gone out there, but the jitters and the the, the short breaths and and then the the emotional exhaustion you felt between acts and the loneliness you felt after after an after a performance. And I'm not sure if every play you do is like this or if that one was just particularly draining. Um, but does TV have the same effect on you, or is this exclusive to theater? It was exclusive to that project. Okay. Jim. I mean, uh, Tea at Five was a one-woman show in which in the course of uh, an hour and, and 45 minutes, I, I you know, dropped uh, two octaves in my voice, and I, I spanned uh, four decades in a woman's life, and um, it wreaked havoc on my vocal cords, and on my private life, because I just, you know, you know I'm, it, that was life. But anybody deeply entrenched in the theater will tell you that that is life. Um, there is no such thing, then, as a, as a private life. You're going to the theater. Mm-hmm. And even though you don't have to be in your dressing room until 6, 6.30, your entire day is shaped around that event. Um, in television, your entire day is that event. <laughs> uh, and often you don't go home at all. On, on Star Trek Voyager, I mean, I'm not kidding you when I say... Many nights it was 16 hours. Many nights it was 17, 18 hours. Many Fridays went into Saturday morning. I mean, I was driving home at dawn, not more than a handful of times, certainly. Um, but the expectation was to put in 70, 75 hours a week without complaint, uh, you, you know, on point, in your four and a half inch heels, and let's get a going. Uh, that was it uh if uh, the men can do it you can do it so get get up there and show us your stuff and um there are no apologies in television because we're remunerated so beautifully but in in, the theater is an entirely different thing entirely different kind of gratification as well so so now i'm curious because i've talked to a number of other um actors who were on various star trek shows and i've heard that before that you know, the expectation was that you were there at all hours and that it was 17, 18 hours a, you know, a day that would stretch into the next day. Is, is all TV like that or is it something exclusive to, to these big, to science fiction or to Star Trek maybe? 
Well, all TV when you're the lead is like that. Okay. <laughs> uh, when you're the lead and you carry the show, you, you that's what you're agreeing to in yeah. your con to do it all. Um, and you're compensated very nicely for it. However, uh, the challenges in Star Trek are almost incomparable. It's like speaking Shakespeare. The language yeah. is, is, is very um, elevated. Uh, the, the science fiction, the, the techno babble, as we call it, is uh, uh, almost impossibly difficult in the, be- in the beginning uh, weeks. I just, uh, I lost so much weight. I was so overcome with anxiety because for, for some time, it seems to me for weeks, see, memory, mm-hmm. somebody would say, no, it was just a day. <laughs> from my point of view, it was weeks that the brass stood in the um, soundstage at the lip of the uh, set and watched me, watched me, with uh, scrutinized me, watching me like uh, falcons watching a... a, a a piece of meat. It's a, it, waiting for me, but to fail to show something. I was the first female captain, so it was intense. Mm-hmm. And I think my compadres of that for of that uh, show will, would agree with that. It was an intense thing for me, and the job of which I am, without question, the proudest. Yeah. How long? You know, obviously. You know, this is it's been said many times before. You were the first female captain, and that was that was a ceiling that you shattered in not just Star Trek, but you know, for television and for science fiction and for and for genre. But how long was that the focus? I mean, it seems like probably when you were doing interviews at the time, that was what everybody was was asking about, and that's what, what everybody was talking about. Yeah, that went on for a couple of years. Were you ever but, frustrated that, that the focus wasn't on, you know, your qualifi- your chops as an actor or, or the, this character, no. Janeway, that you were creating? No, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I wasn't frustrated. Um, uh, Jean-Vier Bougeot was frustrated, I think, by the way. <laughs> she lasted exactly one day. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wasn't frustrated by it because I knew that it was a necessary part of it. Uh, I welcomed it, in fact. Um, let's uh, let's get this out and let's uh, uh, enhance my value as much as possible so as to make me in the end indispensable to this and then when the time is right I'm going to uh, change gears and that's exactly what I did um, I was so busy trying to understand it I wasn't a sci-fi fan I'd never seen Star Trek I didn't know anything about it um, I was it really in deep and shot out of a cannon into those <laughs> waters pits. So I, trust me when I say, you know, shark-infested <laughs> waters. <laughs> what is this language? What am I saying? Where do I go? What am I doing? And so if they wanted to do, put me on every cover of every magazine, and if they wanted to extol my virtues as the first female captain over my virtues as a captain initially, that well, I wasn't going to argue that. At the end of the season, I went to the producer, Rick Berman, who was my friend and someone I, to this day, like very much. And I said, okay, enough. Enough with the hair, enough with the bras, enough with the four-inch heels, enough with the thing. Let me be the captain. Mm-hmm. You've got to let me go. If I can't win them on my own, this will not succeed. And you will have failed in your prediction that a woman can do it. In your, you know, avidity. To, to sort of point up my my femininity, you are uh, precluding my my captaincy, my command. Let me have it. Mm-hmm. And then they did. And then I did get it. 
and I got what I wanted, which was Janeway. Nice. I wanted Janeway, and I got her. And I had her for seven seasons, and uh, I'm very proud of her. I'm nice. proud of what we did. It was good. It was great. Yeah. And seeing her congratulate Brie Larson on Twitter was <laughs> such a moment for so many women, I can't even tell you. Oh, good. My good. Twitter feed went crazy when you posted that. It was fantastic. I needed to do that. <laughs> and I needed to do it with AOC, who I got behind. Yeah. Uh, so great. She's turning out to be something in the, uh, in the house. Uh, women are. Uh, it's a new day. But at mm -hmm. that time, it wasn't. So you, you measured yourself in a way so that you could win the war. Do you understand me, Cherie? Not I the battle, the war. Oh, and I do. Yeah, I took the long view and I, I did win. I think I did win that war. So I feel good about that, really good about that. I don't know if you are into sci-fi now and if you watch The Expanse, but if you haven't... Watch it. Watch it because that battle that you fought has... Yeah, <laughs> you will see it. Has borne the impact that yeah. it had. Good, good. No, I'm, 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 I'm not doing. I'm doing something now, which I guess could be considered. No, it's not considered science fiction. I'm doing a show now. I'm playing a character now, the likes of which I n never dreamed that I would play. She is so far into anything uh, I have ever tapped into, and I am having the time of my life. This series is called Mr. Mercedes Stars. <gasps> Gleason, written by the inestimable and incomparable David E. Kelly, and helmed by uh, Jack Bender, one of the best showrunners I've ever worked with. And I play a psychopath, and I am ripping it up, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> some fun for me. So it's unleashed something that's been lying dormant in there for a long time. I've been the good girl all my life. And I think the actress, the real actress, hungry to play all of those other dimensions, has sprung from the gate, and well, I'm just licking my chops. I feel like mm -hmm. I feel like you sprang from that gate in Orange Is the New Black, though, too. Uh, yes, I did. The gate <laughs> opened there. The, the gate certainly opened there. She was uh, quite unexpected, and uh, and came to me also uh, quickly. Uh, uh, Reznikov. She came to me, and I loved Red. Um, I wanted more. You always want more. Sure. Um, but when you're working with, you know, 25 other actresses, uh, talk about a good mother. Genji Cohen was a, a different kind of mother than my mother. She didn't uh, show favoritism. She spread it around. So I never got the time that I really longed for with Red, but although I'm certainly not complaining, I loved the character and, and every second of playing her. But in this character, Alma Lane, I'm, I'm getting some red meat nice. uh, on a daily level yeah it's good nice. Zoe, uh, 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 Shiri I heard you uh, have a, a quick inhale when she mentioned the show oh because are the, is it based on the Stephen King books it is indeed on the Stephen King trilogy so this those is are really good books <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 I mean I could have said that right away and penned by the master uh, so it's just uh, it's it's great great fun yeah, excellent, excellent, and wildly unexpected stuff. So <laughs> I've told my children they're not allowed to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask a, just a, a kind of a, a fun question, but I, I grew up going to Star Trek conventions with my mom. 
um, mm-hmm. you know, this was back when you know the next gen was on TV. So I have fond memories of, of seeing the entire original cast up on stage, and you know those experiences with my mother was something that I, I really cherish. However, if everything works out the way it's supposed to work out, this year will be my first time attending Star Trek Vegas. So what should I be prepared for? Oh, madness. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, you have to find a um, an aide. Yeah. They're walking all over the place. And tell them to get your get ha, write a note, put your name on it and your number and have ask them to, to take it to me. Okay. And um and then I will make sure that you have a good seat in the auditorium <laughs> and so forth. Uh, it's a, it's an absolute bloody madhouse. You 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 will see 35,000 people who look um like uh, every character you've ever seen in Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, only one or two will look like human beings. And um, that's what it's like. Uh, it's just a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a bacchanal. These people <laughs> adore Star Trek. And they're there to celebrate every element of it. So don't get lost. <laughs> you need to, you know, carry a little red flag and make sure I, you get your information to me. What day are you coming? Um, again, I don't have definite plans yet, but I'm going to be there. If I go, I'll be there for the entire stretch of the show. All right. Just make sure you get to somebody who, um, well, you have my number now, don't you? Do you Uh, have my number? I I don't. I I am in touch with uh, Amy, though. And I believe Tell Amy. Tell Amy. She'll be there. Okay. Tell Amy that you need to find her in Vegas, and then we'll take care of you. Okay. Okay? Yes. That's promise. Um, but you've been doing these shows, and not just the Vegas, not just Star Trek, but lots of conventions. You've been doing these for at least 20 years, at least when the show was on the air. Do you ever get tired of them? Because I, I have to imagine when you have these audience Q&As, you get asked the same questions. You have to give the same stories and the same answers. Like, does it ever just get tiring to you? You know, strangely, uh, no. Uh, in antici- the, the anticipation is, is a wearying one. Uh, but the actual moment itself, uh, the ego kicks right in. <laughs> and uh, happy as a clam to be in front of 5,000 cheering fans. Do you know what I mean? I, I can only imagine. So it's, uh, no, it's gratifying. It's, um, and often quite moving. Um, I find the women particularly moving. Uh, a lot of them um, attribute their success or their fields of interest to having watched Catherine Janeway. And that really uh, uh, gets me because that that really makes me feel that I had done something of some measure of importance. So, no, I mean, you know, once you get into that stuff, Jamie, where you start saying, I'm tired of this and I'm then don't fucking go. Do you know? (laughs) Don't don't go. Why bother people with your uh, with your boredom? Um, I wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't subject these very devoted fans to that. It's the worst kind of uh, patronage. And I, I I. uh, patronization, excuse me, and I, I won't, um, I don't subscribe to it, and I won't do it. I think it's uh, on principle. I simply won't do it. Yeah. So I don't do many, but I do the ones that I, where I believe that I can, I can be fully present and make a contribution. That's great. Um, I know we've run up. And We're running out of time. Run, do you have one last question? I have one last question. Um, okay. And so there are people out there somewhere right now. Who just learned or or are about to learn that their parents or other loved ones have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm. If you could give advice to them or even go back and talk to yourself in the past, what would you say? I know what I'd say. I'd say 
if at all possible, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, make it your priority to spend as much time with this parent as possible, as quickly as possible, because the trajectory is dismal. You will not have them cognitively present to you for more than a year. And uh, you must then get every second out of that that you can, of what you recall, of who they once were. Because soon enough you will see the beginnings of the thicket into which they will wander and out of which they will never emerge. Uh, Go to them. And while you're with them, put in place with your last pennies a caregiver who cannot be your other parent who must be an outsider who will have the um, wherewithal and the resources to take care of the suffering parent in ways that the other cannot be expected to handle Um, have your siblings and your relatives all start a purse uh, to this end because it is a long dark journey and you cannot ask anybody in the family to shoulder that burden without implying a lifetime of grief. And you wouldn't do that to anybody that you love. That would be my advice. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. <laughs>